This is an ABC podcast. From next week, it's expected you'll return to the office a minimum of three days a week. If you wish to continue to work from home, it's at your supervisor's discretion and you must complete a flexible work agreement. So your boss or HR has emailed you and in no uncertain terms, it's time to head back into the office. How do you feel? Elated at the prospect of being near your colleagues or deflated at the prospect of putting on pants with an actual waistband and an hour each way on the train? Or both? I'm Lisa Leong and today on This Working Life, we return to the office and it seems employers may have a battle on their hands to turn the ship on remote work. People are tasting it and they've also tasted the fact that it's an effective mode of working. So when employers are thinking about bringing people back, the data, especially in the U.S., it's up to 87% of employees want to retain some form of remote work post-pandemic. Big dilemma for organizations. That's remote work expert Professor Sadal Neely from Harvard Business School. Sadal has researched global teams and remote work for more than 20 years. And in this, we trump the US because according to a PwC report, 91% of Australians want to work from home at least some of the time. One of the main issues in terms of remote work is trust. Trust is actually one of the two most studied, examined, explored area in the virtual world. The first one being productivity, because trust actually directly impacts productivity. It's really important. It's the glue that binds uh, people together who are collaborating. And what we know about virtual trust is that it has to happen differently than in-person trust. Mm -hmm. What I mean here is the, there are two types of trust that are really important in remote or virtual environments. So the first one is called cognitive trust. Uh, and cognitive trust is grounded in the belief that others are dependable and uh, have the competence to achieve work that we need. The second form of trust is called emotional trust, which is grounded in the belief that our interests and our concerns uh, are th those that others care about. So my manager cares about my interest. My manager cares about um, uh, me and the things that I'm concerned about. That's called emotional trust. You need both uh, at the workplace, but the one that's most important for the purpose of work is the cognitive trust. And in the remote environments, we confer this cognitive trust uh, almost at time zero. We call it swift trust because all we need is to understand whether someone is reliable or so and someone has the competence. And this is actually incredibly liberating. It's the type of trust uh, that has been identified to be really useful in the remote environment. But you need, you need it. You need both. Do I not need to know you personally in order to create this cognitive trust? You do not. You only need to understand that you can trust the fact that I will show up when I need to, that I have the qualifications that I need to. That is enough. Of course, uh, you will be taking in information about me as a person while we work. But this cognitive trust is truly about 
competence and reliability, and then we can get to working. When it comes to the emotional trust, though, you really do need to know people personally because that's a different form of connection and confidence that people have to have. But you don't need emotional trust in order to get work done. So how do we develop emotional trust? With emotional trust, there are two known ways to develop them effectively. The first one is mature self-disclosure. That means when a group gets together or individuals are working together remotely, a dose of sharing yourself in the area of preferences, aspirations, thoughts, comments, perspectives, and um, concerns are all things that you want to reveal because the research finds that the more we share of ourselves, the more others perceive us as approachable and likable. The second way to develop this emotional trust is through empathy. Empathy meaning to both have the capacity to put yourself in the shoes of others and reflect that knowledge back into your interactions and relationship that you have with people. So it's not just having empathy. People talk about empathy all the time. We need empathy. We need empathy. But in the virtual environments, you need to reflect your empathy gains in the relationship, reflect it back through your words, reflect it back through your deeds. I have heard through work that people are saying, I don't think I can build trust online. I can't wait to get back to face-to-face, but it sounds like you're debunking this myth. A hundred percent, and I'm not the only one. I can tell you that there are three decades worth of research that were conducted by managers, by scholars, by information systems people, by organizational behavior people that have looked at the difference between trust building online, remotely, virtually, and trust building in person. And the findings are as robust as long as the studies have been, you can absolutely build trust virtually. It's just a different pathway to get there. And it takes, uh, uh, at times, particularly for the emotional trust, longer to achieve. But the fact that we can do it is 100% proven. Now, trust is fragile. So what kills trust? Trust is very fragile. Many things can kill trust. One is if you demonstrate that you're not reliable, it affects trust. If you demonstrate that you don't have either the competence or the interest in gaining the competence that is necessary, that affects trust. If people share confidential information that they want you to hold close to you because of the emotional trust that you're working on and they find that you violated it, trust is affected. The way you represent them publicly is another thing that people see. Yes, indeed, trust is fragile. So if we don't maintain the confidence that we've gained in what we say, what we do, trust can be broken and it's extremely difficult to repair. But it could be repaired, but it takes time. So that teamwork is one of the things which can be more difficult to manage when in a hybrid situation. So what are the elements that make an effective team in your uh, research and opinion? 
you're so right. Leading a hybrid team is more difficult than actually an all-remote team or an all-in-person team. And when I say leading a hybrid team, here I'm describing a scenario where you have certain people in the room in a meeting while others are dialing in. Right there and then, you've created differences with the proximity that you have with your manager, but also with one another. So what happens before the meeting, what happens happens in the meeting, what happens after the meeting becomes incredibly important to manage very thoughtfully. So what makes it effective? To ensure that you're holding an inclusive conversation, whether people are dialing in, zooming in, or in the room, you give people adequate airtime. You help people dial down who are dominating or dominant. You make sure that those who are quiet for some reason, it's harder to see when you can jump into a conversation when uh, you're zooming in or calling in, but a leader has to help people dial up and draw people in. And the entire time, it's important to ensure that you're not playing favoritism uh, with the people who are close to you and uh, ensuring that those who are dialing in are not suffering from FOMO, fear of missing out. So it's really being really thoughtful to ensure that everyone feels heard, seen, and included. That's the challenge of uh, the hybrid uh, meetings. Would you say don't do it or try not to do it? Absolutely not. You have to do it. This is where the world is moving. When the majority of employees have now tasted the virtualization of work and want a bit of this, what makes it really compelling to people is the autonomy that they gain, the flexibility that they gain, and the ability to think very differently about their work lives. Although, of course, there are some boundaries that everyone needs to work hard to set. But once you have seen, it's like if you were blind and you were given eyesight to see the experience of virtual work it's impossible to unsee. It's impossible to not experience. So we have to move into the next phase of our work revolution, which means figure out how we do hybrid. The same way that global organizations have had to figure out how to work when their operations are geographically distributed, meaning proximity now becomes a thing that they have to manage, time zones and proximity, we need to think along the same lines, the same type of approach where people do not need to be in person for us to be effective. One of the things that worries me is that employers will force, coerce people to come back full-time in person and mistake physical proximity to emotional commitment to the organization. I don't think we want people hanging around the water cooler or the coffee machine or the tea kettle talking about the extent to which they resent this control over them and their times. The world has changed. The world has changed. If you had one message to managers here in Australia who are currently mandating their staff return to work to the office, what would it be? You know, I have been 
talking to leaders, managers, uh, some very big companies, some not so big, uh, some that are uh, millions of dollars, some billions of dollars, heads of heads of companies. And I would urge people not to make decisions and lead by fears versus needs. You want people's hearts and minds at the workplace. And if people want to continue to experience the positive virtues of remote work in their professional lives, and some companies offer it, others don't, I think those companies who will offer it are going to be competitive and they're going to get the best talent. And what's more, if you ever consider a global organizational form you by definition are going to be a virtual and distributed organization. So I believe that to be a company that can join the rest of the world and accept the virtualization of work and accept the virtualization of industries, I don't think you can force people to a pre-global pandemic work arrangement when the whole world is moving in another direction. It's impossible to not experience virtual work in the past year as we've experienced it and force people back to work. And the last thing I'll say is that the historical arguments around productivity concerns, collaboration concerns that we had in the past can no longer work. Those have been completely debunked. So you have to give people full reason that's beyond the idea of controlling people or worrying about culture to prove that going back to work fully is the right thing to do. You have to prove that to people. Otherwise, it's all about control and monitoring. You're not going to hold on to amazing talent that way. The world has changed. Thank you, Sadal. Thank you so much for having me. Professor Sadal Neely, and Sadal's new book is called Remote Work Revolution. to This Working Life. I'm Lisa Leong, and today it's all about pivoting back to the office after 12 months in sneakers and stretchy pants. With me now is Dr. Adam Fraser. He researches peak performance at work. Adam, tell me about the third space and how it can help us as we move into the hybrid model of work, partly from home and partly from the office. About eight years ago, myself and Deakin University were studying how do we transition from work to home? Because often we take a bad day home with us. Like, Lisa, can you relate to this? If we've had a frustrating day, we drag it home with us, which obviously affects our interaction in the home. So we came up with this concept called the third space, which is basically that transitional gap between work and home. And what we showed is how we use that space dramatically influences how we show up and whether we drag a bad day home with us. Now, Since then, we've been doing research over 2020 to look at how does working from home affect the individual, but also affect their ability to be present in in their personal life. And what we've shown is dramatic changes over that time. So that's kind of our background and our research and what we've been looking at. And can we also uh, go through in terms of the third space, the three phases? 
One of the things we did with Deakin University is we spent three years studying, is there a perfect formula to a transition? And what we found is there's three key things. So the first stage is called the reflect phase. And this is whenever we move away from something, whether it's work or whether it's even moving away from home into work, is we want to reflect on what's just happened. So as we leave the work day, we we want to reflect on um, and make sense of the day and close it down. Now, what we found is a lot of people, when when they reflect on their work day, they reflect on everything that sucked. <laughs> you know, I didn't get to that. I forgot that. When am I going to fit that in? And what we got people to do instead is to reflect on, all right, what did you achieve? What got done? What went well? How did you improve today? And what that does is it puts you in a more optimistic mindset, but it also gives you a burst of happiness. And that helps you drag that into the home. Now, the second phase is called rest. And that is anything that makes you still and present. So it's just about calming your brain. Because when, when we work, like our brain's in this hyperkinetic state, and we want to calm it before we move into the home. So that's that rest phase. And it could be, you know, Sudoku on the bus, reading a book on the train, doing a relaxation app, going for a walk. And the final phase is called reset. And this is where we start to think about the environment we're about to move into. And what we start to think about is how do I want to show up for that? What sort of interaction do I want to have? What sort of, what's my intention for that environment? So these three phases of reflect, rest, reset was the perfect transition. And what we found is a lot of people took these three steps and then made it suit their their commute or their uh, what they did between work and home when they were working at home, and they just molded it to suit their life. So they are the three perfect, like that's what really helps you transition effectively. And what are the benefits of doing this? Oh, huge benefits. Um, What we're seeing ranging from the ability to be present in the home, the ability, like lower anxiety, the capacity to switch off and recover. Because I mean, the latest research we did in 2020 showed that 65% of people said that they were finding it hard to turn off from work when they were working in the home. And 64% of people said that I'm thinking about work more when I work at home in my personal time. So when I'm with the family, I I have thoughts of, oh, I forgot that, or I've got to do that, or I should send that email. So what's happening is there's no separation. And those two worlds have bled into each other. Now, this creates more anxiety. It feels like we're never off. And also it, it it reduces the quality of the interaction we have with the people that mean the most to us. And is finding this third space more complicated now that we're moving into the office at least a few days a week? Because I certainly had a COVID routine and I'm actually finding it quite hard because half the time I'm in the office and half the time I'm at home and I don't seem to have any routine anymore. Yeah, I think that statement's bang on because like, Ideally, the hybrid model is the best way to work. Uh, One of the things our research showed is that people, when we work from home, uh, what we don't have to worry about is productivity and efficiency. We're working really well. We're getting stuff done. We're being productive. But the longer people were working from home, the more disconnected they felt from the people that they worked with. So they felt lonely, disconnected. And even though the technology allowed them to communicate, because we weren't physically there, that visceral experience made us feel lonely and that we weren't part of a team anymore. So 
ideally, we don't want to work from home full time. But also, for productivity reasons, we don't want to be in the office full time. Mm -hmm. The hybrid is the perfect model. And as you pointed out, it's hard when you're shifting between those two worlds. So what, what I would encourage people to do is have clear structures around transitions in terms of a third space when I'm in the office, but also when I'm at home. So we need to have one for each circumstance. And sorry, is this at the end of a workday or is this beginning and end or even in the middle of a workday? Well, actually, that's a great question because what we're talking about here is transitions yeah, all the transitions we make, and it could be going from one meeting to another. It could be uh, one interaction to another. Like our our day is made up of spaces. Like the first space is what we're doing now. Second space, what we're about to do. And the third space is that transitional gap. So I'm talking to you now, but then in a moment, I've got to have a meeting about a big research project I'm working on. Then I've got to go see my kids' concert. Um, yeah, like we we make these transitions and the third space is just using that transitional gap to leave behind what we just did, but most importantly, get our head right for the next thing. And we've taught this to ambulance officers transitioning home after a hard day, even uh, leaders in between meetings or uh, we've even worked with triple um, O responders and that gap between phone calls can be a three second gap, but it's just using it to reset yourself. So, yeah, it's a great question and we can use it in all the transitions we make. How long does your transition take you, Adam? Well, it depends. <laughs> and this is the beauty of the concept is it's very flexible. So, um, you know, I, I often, my, my third space is after I finish work because I often work from home is I'll grab my dog, Tilly. I'll grab my two daughters and we go for a walk to the dog park and we let Tilly run around and we climb some trees and we be silly. And then I come home and I shift into home mode as a dad and a husband. Um, if I'm flying, you know, it's the, it's the drive from the airport to home. Um, so really it's, it, it, I have multiple third spaces depending on where I'm coming home from. I have a little bit of a breathing routine. So I make some noises. I do some vocal exercises. <laughs> and then I actually do a power pose. I, I don't know if you felt that when uh, we started the interview. you're not doing this on a bus or a train, <laughs> are you? Oh, everywhere. <laughs> I, I have no fear. I'll just start doing my power pose yeah, as no I transition. Shame. Yeah, no shame yeah. whatsoever. Um, but I have been making it shorter and shorter because it had started off being quite long and then I spent most of the day transitioning and, and less time actually <laughs> doing any work. So I think um, maybe making it quite short and I didn't do a reflect phase. I don't think I do that. I think I skipped that, but I, I might try that. Yeah, and look, just play around with it. And, yeah, I, I shared this with an executive um, and he said... Uh, all I did as I drive home is I just think about, well, how do I want to show up? Because how I often showed up was I took out my day on my family and I just think about what kind of dad do I want to be? What sort of partner do I want to be? So it can be like, it can be quite short. It's, it's a very flexible concept. But getting back to what you were saying, the breathing is genius. The breathing is um, about that rest phase of how do I calm myself? How do I reduce my cortisol levels, my adrenaline? That's a really smart move. The power pose is that reset phase of, yeah, obviously, you've read the research around um, power posing. I think it's Amy Cuddy, is mm -hmm. it? Did that yes, research? Amy Cuddy. Yeah, so that, 
you're resetting yourself. And, and you know, I do a tremendous amount of um, conference speaking. So I use the third space before I walk out on stage to get my head right to do a presentation in front of a couple of thousand people. So this, this concept can be applied to so many aspects of our life. Thank you so much, Adam. My pleasure. It's been great to talk to you, Lisa. Keep power posing. Yeah, I'm doing it now. (laughs) Adam Fraser, and his book is called The Third Space. company today. Join me again next week as we dig deeper into the return to the office, asking what we can do when we feel we've hit the pandemic wall and how can we best manage the transition back and keep our sanity. If you enjoyed our show, please shoot it through to a friend who needs a little sunshine at work right now. And if you haven't already, subscribe so downloading us is one less thing to think about. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.